Section 9 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 11, American Founders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. George Washington, Part 4. Washington is venerated not so much for his military genius and success in bringing the war to a triumphant conclusion as for his patriotism and disinterestedness since such moral worth as his is much rarer and more extraordinary than military fame. Fortunately, his devotion to the ultimate welfare of the country, universally conceded, was supreme wisdom on his part, not only for the land he loved, but for himself, and has given him a name which is above every other name in the history of modern times. He was tested, and he turned from the temptation with abhorrence. He might, and he might not, have succeeded in retaining supreme power, the culmination of human ambition but he neither sought nor desired it it was reward enough for him to have the consciousness of virtue and enjoy the gratitude of his countrymen washington at last persuaded congress to do justice to the officers and men who had sacrificed so much for their country's independence in spite of the probability of peace he was tireless in continuing preparations for effective war he was of great service to Congress in arranging for the disbandment of the army after the preliminary treaty of peace in March 1783, and guided by wise counsel the earlier legislation affecting civil matters in the states and on the frontiers. The general army was disbanded November 3rd. On November 25th, the British evacuated New York, and the American authorities took possession. On December 4th, Washington bade farewell to his assembled officers, and on the 23rd he resigned his commission to Congress a patriotic and memorable scene and then he turned to the placidities of domestic life in his home at mount vernon but this life and this home so dear to his heart it was not long permitted him to enjoy on the formation and adoption of the federal constitution in seventeen eighty nine he was unanimously chosen to be the first president of the united states in a preceding lecture I have already presented the brilliant constellation of statesmen who assembled at Philadelphia to construct the fabric of American liberties. Washington was one of them, but this great work was not even largely his. On June 8, 1783, he had addressed a letter to the governors of all the states concerning the essential elements of the well-being of the United States, which showed the early, careful, and sound thought he had given to the matter of what he termed an indissoluble union of the states under one federal head. But he was not a great talker, or a great writer, or a preeminently great political genius. He was a general and an administrator rather than an original constructive statesman whose work involved a profound knowledge of law and history. No one man could have done that work. It was the result of the collected wisdom and experience of the nation, of the deliberations of the foremost intellects from the different states. Men such as Hamilton, Madison, Wilson, Rutledge, Dickinson, Ellsworth, and others. Jefferson and Adams were absent on diplomatic missions. Franklin was old and gouty. Even Washington did little more than preside over the convention, but he stimulated its members with imposing dignity and the constant exercise of his preeminent personal influence to union and conciliation. So I turn to consider the administrations of President Washington, the policy of which, in the main, was the rule of the succeeding presidents, of Adams and the Virginia dynasty. The cabinet which he selected was able and illustrious, especially so were its brightest stars, Jefferson as Secretary of State and Hamilton as Secretary of the Treasury, to whose opinions the President generally yielded. 
it was unfortunate that these two great men liked each other so little and were so jealous of each other's ascendancy but their political ideas diverged in many important points hamilton was the champion of federalism and jefferson of states rights the one politically was an aristocrat and the other though born on a plantation was a democrat washington had to use all his tact to keep these statesmen from an open rupture their mutual hostility saddened and perplexed him he had selected them as the best men for their respective posts and in this had made no mistake but their opposing opinions prevented that cabinet unity so essential in government and possibly crippled washington himself this great country has produced no administration comprising four greater men than president washington the general who had led its armies in a desperate war vice president john adams the orator who most eloquently defined national rights jefferson the diplomatist who managed foreign relations on the basis of perpetual peace and hamilton the financier who struck the rock from which flowed the abundant streams of national credit general knox secretary of war had not the intellectual caliber of hamilton and jefferson but had proved himself an able soldier and was devoted to his chief edmund randolph the attorney general was a leading lawyer in virginia and belonged to one of its prominent families outside the cabinet the judiciary had to be filled and washington made choice of john jay as chief justice of the supreme court a most admirable appointment and he associated with him the great lawyers wilson of pennsylvania cushing of massachusetts blair of virginia iredell of north carolina and rutledge of south carolina all of whom were distinguished and all selected for their abilities without regard to their political opinions it is singular that as this country has advanced in culture and population the men who have occupied the highest positions have been inferior in genius and fame selected not because they were great but because they were available that is because they had few enemies and were supposed to be willing to become the tools of ambitious and scheming politicians intriguing for party interests and greedy for the spoils of office fortunately or providentially some of these men have disappointed those who elevated them and have unexpectedly developed in office both uncommon executive power and still rarer integrity reminding us of those popes who have reigned more like foxes and lions than like the asses that before their elevation sometimes they were thought to be trifling as it may seem the first measure of the new government pertained to the etiquette to be observed at receptions dinners etc in which there was more pomp and ceremony than at the present time washington himself made a greater public display with his chariot and four than any succeeding president his receptions were stately the president stood with dignity clad in his velvet coat never shaking hands with anyone however high his rank he walked between the rows of visitors pretty much as napoleon did at the tuileries saying a few words to each but people of station were more stately and aristocratic in those times than at the present day even in new england towns washington himself was an old-school gentleman of the most formal sort and although benevolent in aspect and kindly in manner was more tenacious of his dignity than great men usually are this had been notable throughout the war his most intimate friends and daily associates his most prominent and trusted generals patriotic but hot-headed complainants turbulent malcontents all alike found him courteous and considerate yet hedged about with an impassive dignity that no one ever dared to violate a superb horseman a powerful and active swordsman an unfailing marksman with rifle or pistol he never made a display of these qualities 
but there are many anecdotes of such prowess in sudden emergencies as caused him to be idolized by his companions in arms while yet their manifestations of feeling were repressed by the veneration imposed upon all by his lofty personal dignity thus also as president it was no new access of official pomposity but the man's natural bearing that maintained a lofty reserve at these public receptions possibly too he may have felt the necessity of maintaining the prerogative of the federal head of all these independent but now united states hence on his visit to boston soon after his inauguration he was offended with john hancock then governor of massachusetts for neglecting to call on him as etiquette certainly demanded the pompous overrated old merchant rich and luxurious though a genuine patriot perhaps thought that washington would first call on him as governor of the state perhaps he was withheld from his official duty by an attack of the gout but at last he saw the necessity and was borne on men's shoulders into the presence of the president in considering the vital points in the administration of washington the reader will not expect to find any of the spirited and exciting elements of the revolutionary period the organization and ordering of governmental policies is not romantic but hard patient persevering work all questions were yet unsettled at least in domestic matters such as finance tariffs and revenue one thing is clear enough that the national debt and the state debts and the foreign debt altogether amounted to about seventy five million dollars the interest on which was unpaid by reason of a depleted treasury and want of credit which produced great financial embarrassments then there were grave indian hostilities demanding a large military force to suppress them and there was no money to pay the troops and when Congress finally agreed, in the face of great opposition, to adopt the plans of Hamilton and raise a revenue by excise on distilled spirits, chiefly manufactured in Pennsylvania, there was a rebellion among the stubborn and warlike Scotch-Irish, who were the principal distillers of whiskey, which required the whole force of the government to be put down. In the matter of revenue, involving the most important of all the problems to be solved, Washington adopted the views of Hamilton, and contented himself with recommending them to Congress, a body utterly inexperienced and ignorant of the principles of political economy. Nothing was so unpopular as taxation in any form, and yet without it the government could not be carried on. The southern states wanted an unrestricted commerce, amounting to free trade, that they might get all manufactured articles at the smallest possible price and these came chiefly from abroad all import duties were an abomination to them and yet without these a national revenue could not be raised it is true that washington had recommended the encouragement of domestic manufactures the dependence of country on foreigners for nearly all supplies having been one of the chief difficulties of the war but the great idea of protection had not become a muted point in national legislation Hamilton had further proposed a bank, but this also met with great opposition in Congress among the Anti-Federalists and the partisans of Jefferson, fearful and jealous of a moneyed power. In the end, the measures which Hamilton suggested were generally adopted, and the good results were beginning to be seen, but the financial position of the country for several years after the formation of the federal government was embarrassing, if not alarming. Again, there was no national capital, and Congress, which had begun its labors in New York, could not agree upon the site, which was finally adopted only by a sort of compromise, the South accepting the financial scheme of Hamilton, if the capital should be located in southern territory. All the great national issues pertaining to domestic legislation were in embryo, and no settled policy was possible amid so many sectional jealousies. It was no small task for Washington to steer the ship of state among these breakers 
no other man in the nation could have done so well as he for he was conciliatory and patient ever ready to listen to reason and to get light from any quarter modest in his recommendations knowing well that his training had not been in the schools of political economy his good sense and sterling character enabled him to surmount the difficulties of his situation which was anything but a bed of roses in the infancy of the republic the foreign relations of the government were deemed more important and excited more interest than internal affairs and in the management of foreign affairs jefferson displayed great abilities which washington appreciated as much as he did the financial genius of hamilton in one thing the president and his secretary of state were in full accord in keeping aloof from the labyrinth of european politics and maintaining friendly intercourse with all nations with a peace policy only would commerce thrive and industries be developed both washington and jefferson were broad-minded enough to see the future greatness of the country and embraced the most liberal views hence the foreign envoys were quietly given to understand that the members of the american government were to be treated with the respect due to the representatives of a free and constantly expanding country which in time would be as powerful as either england or france it was seen moreover that both france and england would take every possible advantage of the new republic and would seek to retain a foothold in the unexplored territories of the northwest as well as to gain all they could in commercial transactions england especially sought to hamper our trade with the west india islands and treated our envoys with insolence and coldness the french sought to entangle the united states in their own revolution with which most americans sympathized until its atrocities filled them with horror and disgust the english impressed american seamen into their naval service without a shadow of justice or good faith in seventeen ninety five jay succeeded in making a treaty with the english government which was ratified because it was the best he could get not because it was all that he wished it bore hard on the cities of the atlantic coast that had commercial dealings with the west india islands and led to popular discontent and bitter animosity towards england finally culminating in the war of eighteen twelve the french were equally irritating and unreasonable in their expectations the directory in seventeen ninety three sent an arrogant and insulting envoy to the seat of the government citizen genet as he was called tried to engage the united states in the french war against england although washington promptly proclaimed neutrality as the american policy genet gave no end of trouble and vexation this upstart paid no attention to the laws no respect to the constituted authorities insulted governors and cabinet ministers alike insisted on dealing with congress directly instead of through the secretary of state issues letters of mark for privateers against english commerce and defied the government he did all that he could do to embroil the country in war with great britain and there was a marked division of sentiment among the people the new democratic republican societies in imitation of the french jacobin clubs being potent disseminators of democratic doctrine and sympathy with the french uprising against despotism the forbearance of washington in suffering the irascible and boastful genet to ride roughshod over his own cabinet was extraordinary in ordinary times the man would have been summarily expelled from the country at last his insults could no longer be endured and his recall was demanded but he did not return to france and strange to say settled down as a peaceful citizen in new york the lenient treatment of this insulting foreigner arose from the reluctance of washington to loosen the ties which bound the country to france and from gratitude for the services she had rendered in the war whatever may have been the motives that had influenced that government to yield assistance 
Washington, who had consented in 1794 to serve a second term as president, now began to weary of the cares of office. The quarrel between Hamilton and Jefferson, leading to the formation of the two great political parties, which under different names have since divided the nation, the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania, which required the whole strength of the government to subdue, the Indian atrocities in the Northwest, resulting in the unfortunate expedition of St. Clair, the opposition to the financial schemes of the Secretary of the Treasury to restore the credit of the country, and the still greater popular disaffection towards Jay's treaty with Great Britain, these and other annoyances made him long for the quiet life of Mount Vernon, and he would have resigned the presidency in disgust, but for patriotic motives and the urgent remonstrances of his cabinet. Faithful to his trust, he patiently labored on. If his administration was not dashingly brilliant any more than his career as a general, he was beset with difficulties and discouragements which no man could have surmounted more gloriously than he, and when his eight years of service had expired, he had the satisfaction to see that the country was at peace with all the world, that his policy of non-interference with European politics was appreciated, that no more dangers were to be feared from the Indians, that the country was being opened for settlers westward to the Ohio River that the navigation of the Mississippi was free to the Gulf of Mexico, that canals and internal improvements were binding together the different states and introducing general prosperity, that financial difficulties had vanished, and that the independence and assured growth of the nation was no longer a matter of doubt in any European state. Nothing could induce Washington to serve beyond his second term. He could easily have been again elected, if he wished, but he longed for rest and the pursuits of agricultural life. So he wrote his farewell address to the American people, exhorting them to union and harmony, a document filled with noble sentiments for the meditation of all future generations. Like all his other writings, it is pregnant with moral wisdom and elevated patriotism, and in language is clear, forcible, and to the point. He did not aim to advance new ideas or brilliant theories, but rather to enforce old and important truths which would reach the heart as well as satisfy the head. The burden of his song in this, and in all his letters and messages and proclamations, is union and devotion to public interests, unswayed by passion or prejudice. On the 3rd of March, 1797, the President gave his farewell dinner to the most distinguished men of the time, and as soon as possible after the inauguration of his successor, John Adams, he set out for his plantation on the banks of the Potomac, where he spent his remaining days in dignity and quiet hospitalities, amid universal regrets that his public career was ended. Even in his retirement, when there seemed to be eminent danger of war with France, soon after his return to his home, he was ready to buckle on his sword once more, but the troubles were not so serious as had been feared, and soon blew over. They had arisen from the venality and rapacity of Talleyrand, French Minister of Foreign Affairs, who demanded a bribe from the American commissioners of two and a half millions as the price of his friendly services in securing favorable settlements. Their scornful reply, and the prompt preparations in America for war, brought the directory to terms. When the crisis was passed, Washington resumed the care of his large estates, which had become dilapidated during the fifteen years of his public life. His retreat was invaded by great numbers, who wished to see so illustrious a man, but no one was turned away from his hospitable mansion. In December 1799, Washington caught cold from imprudent exposure, and died on the fourteenth day of the month after a short illness. Not what we should call a very old man. His life might probably have been saved, but that, according to the universal custom, he was bled, which took away his vital forces. On the 16th of December, he was buried quietly and without parade in the family vault at Mount Vernon, and the whole nation mourned for him as the Israelites mourned for Samuel of old, 
whom he closely resembled in character and services. It would be useless to dwell upon the traits of character which made George Washington a national benefactor and a national idol, but one inquiry is often made, when he is seriously discussed, whether or no he may be regarded as a man of genius. It is difficult to define genius, which seems to me to be either an abnormal development of particular faculties of mind, or an inspired insight into elemental truths so original and profound that its discoveries pass for revelations. Such genius as this is remarkably rare. I can recall but one statesman in our history who had extraordinary creative power, and this was Hamilton. In the history of modern times, we scarcely can enumerate more than a dozen statesmen, a dozen generals, and the same number of poets, philosophers, theologians, historians, and artists who have had this creative power and this divine insight. Washington did not belong to that class of intellects, but he had what is as rare as transcendent genius. He had a transcendent character, united with a marvelous balance of intellectual qualities, each in itself of a high grade, which gave him almost unerring judgment and remarkable influence over other minds, securing veneration. As a man he had his faults, but they were so few and so small that they seemed to be but spots upon a sun. These have been forgotten, and as the ages roll on, mankind will see naught but the luster of his virtues and the greatness of his services. Authorities The best and latest work on Washington is that of the Honorable Henry Cabot Lodge, and leaves little more to be said. Marshall's Washington has long been a standard. Boda's History of the Revolutionary War, Bancroft's United States, McMaster's History of the American People. In connection, read the standard lives of Franklin, John Adams, Hamilton, Jefferson, Jay, Marshall, Lafayette, and Green with Washington's writings. John Fiske has written an admirable book on Washington's military career. Indeed, his historical series on the early history of America and the United States are both brilliant and trustworthy. Of the numerous orations on Washington, perhaps the best is that of Edward Everett. End of section 9